Hello, 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 and welcome back to the More Money Podcast. This is your host, Jessica Morehouse. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 282, and oh, we're diving into a very deep topic. I am very excited about it. <laughs> um, my next guest on the show, Annabelle Williams, is from across the pond in England, and she wrote an amazing book called Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. I actually found out about her and her book on Twitter somehow. Someone must have retweeted her, and I'm like, I'm sorry, someone wrote a book called Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. I need to read this book and I need to have her on my show. Um, And it's an amazing book. And so a little bit about Annabelle. Um, So she's a financial journalist. Uh, She had uh, two weekly columns in the Times of London and has just released her first book, Why Women Are Poorer Than Men and What We Can Do About It. See, solutions. And uh, the book looks at the inequality in money and wealth between uh, men and women and includes uh, examples from all over the world, including big sections on uh, North America and, uh, you know, a little bit in Canada. I mean, honestly, although lots of the data and research she's done is, you know, based in the UK, it's so applicable to if you're in the US or Canada. I was reading the whole book and just you know, kind of nodding my head like, yeah, yeah, I've experienced that or I totally get that or we have that in Canada here or I've heard from my friends in the US, this is what's going on totally. Yeah, it's it really was one of those books where it's it's an eye opener. Like as a woman, I know that there is inequality. Obviously, I experience it firsthand. And I see, I witness it firsthand as well. But to kind of see some of the stats, it really is shocking. So we dive deep into it. So I know you're gonna love this, especially too if you are not a woman. This is a great episode just to maybe learn some things that you didn't know, um, and a great conversation to have with whoever. I mean, I know we're all still in general at home and and, and stuff like that, but this is, I mean, a great book club topic, actually. If you're in a book club, what a great topic. (laughs) A great book to discuss. Maybe I'll bring it up to my book club, actually. (laughs) This would totally be a great great choice. Um, So I'm so excited to have Annabelle on the show. We are going to talk about some really good stuff. So uh, before I get to that uh, interview with Annabelle, just a few words I want to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by VIP Kid. If you've been listening to my podcast since the very beginning, then you may already know that for me, starting a side hustle in my 20s was a literal game changer. It was the reason that I was able to save up an emergency fund, start investing, travel, and achieve so many other financial goals that would have been very difficult if I relied solely on my salary. And in this weird time where many of us are still stuck at home or looking to find new ways to earn extra income, there's one side hustle I would have jumped at, teaching students English online through VIP Kid. VIP Kid is a platform where people in the US and Canada can teach English as a second language to kids around the world. All you need is a bachelor's degree, at least two years experience teaching or working with children, and that can be anything from nannying to coaching or mentoring, even parenting, and eligibility to work in the United States or Canada. Not only that, you can expect to earn between $14 to $22 US per hour plus incentives and you have 100% flexible scheduling. That means you can work when you want, wherever you want. All you need is a strong Wi-Fi connection. To learn more about VIB Kid, which was named one of Glassdoor's top 10 best places to work in 2019 and 2020 and the number one company for remote jobs, visit jessicamorehouse.com slash VIP Kid. Once again, to learn more, visit jessicamorehouse.com slash VIP kid or check out the show notes for this episode. 
Welcome to the More Money Podcast, Annabelle. I'm so excited to have you on the show. I loved your book. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you this in confidence, even though I'm recording this. I don't necessarily read all the books from the people who are on my show. <laughs> I don't have time. But I read your book and I loved it. And I, I honestly, surprisingly got through it in a very short amount of time. Like I couldn't put it down. Thank you, Jessica. That's fantastic to hear. Um, I've tried to make the book not a misery memoir because so much of what's <laughs> written about kind of women and wealth and money is actually really difficult to read. It's painful to read. Um, so this is very much not a misery memoir. And I'm also very much aware that a lot of people aren't that interested in reading about pensions. Uh, to be quite honest, <laughs> I've been a pensions reporter, but I'm not that interested in reading about retirement in my spare time either. So it covers lots of things and there are really short chapters. So if you get sick of reading about one thing, skip ahead a few pages and it'll be on a different topic. Exactly. But uh, yeah, it's not a misery memoir, but I will say there were so many points where I stopped and looked at my husband. And I'm like, did you know this? Of course, I, he's so much more educated now because I basically told him everything that's in the book. <laughs> so he's learning a lot. Um, but yeah, it was actually shocking. Like, obviously, you focused a lot on, on the UK. And then sometimes you did talk about Canada and uh, the US. But a lot of these things I know are very similar here and in other countries, other developed countries. And it was really shocking. I think a lot of us, you know, modern women may not really understand or, or know the history of what us women have gone through um, in terms of getting independence and uh, all these different things. And basically the answer to why women are poorer than men and why we keep talking about it. It was shocking and really made me sad. It made me sad because growing up, and I think, you know, this was intentional by my parents. They were, you know, very supportive. You know, it's me and two sisters. So it was a lot of women in our household. I was always told you can do whatever you want. I never thought there actually was a, you know, a difference between the genders in terms of what you could achieve or even like, you know, who makes more. It really wasn't until I think I kind of entered university even still like I was I went to film school and so it was actually very male dominated but it wasn't it that didn't actually deter me it's like okay yeah that's kind of normal but it wasn't until I entered the workforce that I realized oh wow this is very different than the bubble that I came from thinking that oh we're all equal and everything's the same no and it's it's it was actually pretty shocking <laughs> a wake-up call in my my early mm -hmm. 20s and then it's something now that I you know especially now working in finance and being, you know, a financial educator, it's something that I feel is so passionate about teaching everybody, but also women, because there really aren't still many voices that talk about, you know, generating wealth and investing and things that you need to do and stuff like that. So I appreciate your book. It really does answer so many questions. And, and I, I you also uh, mentioned at the kind of the beginning of your book, which I appreciate. I'm like, Oh, I don't think she's talking about me. But I definitely know I think I know some people she's kind of maybe talking about or I can identify uh, some people that she may mention. You talk about the kind of women financial gurus who are kind of talking about personal finance in a, you know, empowerment way. And I totally get what you're saying. But I also see some other conversations from people I know, which I appreciate. And they're kind of more in line with the messaging in your book is it's not about us women being like, do more. It's we also have to recognize the circumstances we're in and kind of the the injustices that were, were dealt with. It's not just about asking more money during your job interview. It's sometimes you'll ask and you still won't get it because of the situation. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I can really empathize with what you've said. Um, you know, I say in the book, 
and I believe this, that there has never been a better time to be a woman. We've got so many opportunities, but at the same time, there's a hidden inequality that persists in money and wealth, um, despite all of the other ways in which we are equal with men. Um, and I think the real problem is that the narrative around this has focused on the pay gap. So whilst it's fantastic that that's really come to the fore and it's been a big talking point um, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, I mean, not much has been done to actually change that in Britain or America, but we've kind of got stuck talking about the workplace and actually wealth inequality and the reasons why women aren't ranked among the richest people in America, there are only very few of them, and the why the reasons why women make up the majority of the poor in developing and rich countries all over the world, you know, it's so much more than just what goes on in the workplace, um, and it's rooted in history. And, um, you know, you mentioned there the kind of um, sort of financial uh, gurus, and I feel like the discussion around women and money has become really binary. So there was the Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In. Um, she was uh, a former senior person at Facebook and her seminal work, Lean In, she said that women, basically the opportunities are out there. You just need to go after them and you need to put your hand up and have a seat at the table and all of that. And to be, you know, that was kind of uh, an overview of her book. But, you know, in many ways, she, she was more nuanced than that to give her credit. Um, so there's this kind of mindset. It's really binary that, oh, just women just need to basically advocate for themselves in the workplace. And by all means, be your own best friend, you know, do that. There's so many ways in which you can um, kind of work to make yourself feel better in the workplace, to get the jobs you want, you know, to have the career that you want. But at the same time, the structure of our society no amount of self-advocacy is going to change a system that is structured to keep women poorer than men, you know, and we can see that with regards to, um, you know, childcare and the costs involved in that or, you know, in retirement saving systems where, which were designed by men for men, you know, women can't really compete. So, there's just a bigger conversation to be had, I think. Yeah, I mean, I remember reading Cheryl's book when it came out. And it I mean, it was a huge, you know, everyone read it. It was, it was definitely, you know, everyone was talking about it. And I think, you know, yeah, she has some good things in it. But now in we're kind of having this different lens. It's interesting, because yeah, a lot of what she was saying was, again, you as a woman need to do something extra. But sometimes a that wouldn't work. Or it's like, well, actually, it's not about you know, us women doing more because man, are we doing a lot? If you think about it, it's also we need, you know, just in, like the workplace to change the leadership to change uh, policies to change. And I think that's like a bigger conversation. But yeah, with all these, you know, there's a ton of like in the financial space or just in, in just other spaces, you know, women empowerment, it really is talking to women. And I, I get it because you you're as a woman, you're looking for for some action steps. You're like, what can I do? But it's like, well, there's only so much you can do. I mean, I read her book. I tried to lean in. I still didn't make more. I asked for a raise. I asked for a promotion. I still didn't get it. So it's there's still these barriers that we all face that are kind of beyond our control, which is, I think, that the conversations I'm starting to see a lot more that we need to have a lot more of because, yeah, there's only so much that we can personally do as individuals or as a you know collective. Yeah. So fundamentally, 
the reasons why women tend to have less money than men um, throughout their lives is really because of ideas about what each what each gender should be doing with their time, what each gender is suited to, and also ideas about our aptitude with money, which often are myths. And all of this is rooted in history. So if we take it back, historically, women couldn't have property or they couldn't own anything because they were property. I know. And that was like so hard to read. First, we belonged to our fathers and then to our husbands. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Like, we were assets. We were essentially traded through marriage. Parents and siblings were complicit in the exchange of their girls for dowries. And um, this sounds like outrageously medieval, but it persisted. So medieval English law, um, which was later exported to the American colonies, considered women chattels, which is basically a movable possession, just like a pack horse. So when women got married, um, we became indivisible from our husbands. Um, it meant that women couldn't keep their wages, enter into contracts or own property, couldn't write a will. Um, any possessions that a wife brought to the marriage became her husband's. Even if a man wanted to make a legal agreement with his wife, he couldn't because it would have been like making an agreement with himself. <sighs> and, you know, ownership is intrinsic to power. It meant that basically for generations, women were locked out of owning assets that could rise in value and could give them a sense of independence and something to fall back on should the man not be there for any reason. It's just, yeah, crazy. Like you, I, I feel like I've heard of this and I mean, I am a nerd and love a good period piece. And that's, and it's always, I'm always fascinated by that kind of uh, when they talk about money and, and why you're like, oh, why did this like old lady never get remarried you know this movie is maybe a romance or something it's like it's because she wanted financial independence and that was the only way that she can continue like not become her husband's property and you're like that is just wild that that really wasn't that long ago when you really take a look at it I mean even looking at you know my grandparents they kind of you know my you know grandmas they were kind of you know the property of their husbands or or, or even maybe not in and you know legal the legal sense but you know, when you look at their roles, it's like, wow, my grandma did so much and kind of got nothing for it. And it's exactly that that you allude to that your grandma did so much, but nobody gave her credit. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what's still happening today? Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, because women weren't were property, uh, indivisible from their husbands. We couldn't have things. It also meant that we never got credit for any of our achievements. So um, the first woman inventor in America was a woman called Sibylia Masters. Uh, she invented a new corn mill in 1712, but the um, patent went under her husband's name. And then um, a similar thing happened. So uh, the first women to open a stockbroker business on Wall Street was um, Victoria Woodhull and her sister, Tennessee. It was 1870. And Victoria said, I went on to Wall Street, not particularly because I wanted to be a stockbroker, but because I wanted to plant the flag of women's rebellion in the centre of the continent. That's fantastic. But she literally was, she was hounded. Um, newspaper cartoons depicted her as the devil. She was evicted from her home due to the notoriety. Her children her, were withdrawn from school. Um, she continually had to fend off claims that she was unnatural and wicked. And wow. all that she wanted to do 
will set up a stockbroker and get involved <laughs> in money. You know, imagine her dismay if she knew that 150 years later, the most powerful position in America still hasn't been held by a woman, even though more than 200 women have run for president. I know it's still that's that's the shocking thing is reading about history and then being like, oh, but it's so much better now. But then you you really do look at those leadership roles and it's we're still having conversations about we need to have, you know, legislation or policies or requirements by companies to have, you know, either an equal or more women on their boards. It's like, why are we still talking about this? This should already have been solved, don't you think? Sure. And um. You know, we talk about female poverty, but I really feel that there's um, the wealth gap affects women at all stages of their, um, at, at all kind of stages of life, but also in all socioeconomic classes. So when I talk about um, wealth, I don't mean like riches and CEO level pay. I just mean the amount of assets and possessions and savings that each person is able to accumulate. And in general, women just aren't able to accumulate as much over our lifetimes. So actually, um, uh, in the US, the wealth gap is huge between men and women. The um, typical single American man has wealth of around $30,000, while um, a woman has less than half as much, uh, closer than to $15,000. And there are other aspects like um, so female poverty has really been driven by the rise in single mothers. So we know that women are 90% of lone parents. And while it's far more socially acceptable to be a single mum, women are penalised financially for being lone parents far more harshly than they were in previous generations. And if you don't believe that, look at this. Um, in 1960, less than a third of lone parents were in poverty. But by the 80s, this had more than doubled. And we know during um, Trump's presidency, for example, he actually rolled back a lot of spending um, that was on specifically female programs. Um, you know, this is a, it's kind of a, it's a generational thing. It's like accepted that women are poorer than men. And if anything, it's got worse. You even talk about this in your book. And this has also been, you know, lots of conversations about, you know, the kind of pink tax. It's not only are we earning less, but we also are spending more on stuff than men. And it's, it's almost like we kind of have to either to be socially acceptable, whether it's like, you know, beauty care or, you know, I mean, for me, I'm like, I have to spend so much more money on haircuts than my husband, not because I want to, but because I kind of have to, because you go get your hair. And I feel like that may have been in, in your book, <laughs> actually, it wasn't about haircuts. Um, uh, you know, like my haircuts really, at the end of the day, it's not that much more complicated than say a man getting his haircut, but I've spent maybe three times or four times more. Especially if you're a woman with short hair, like yeah. there are women that literally have the same haircut as a guy, but they're still charged more. Um, and it's similar things. Like if you take go to the dry cleaner with a woman's blouse. Um, a man's shirt is practically the same, but the woman's uh, item will normally be charged more for dry cleaning. But the thing is, is that, you know, there are men out there that say, well, women don't have to buy any of this stuff. You know, you don't have to buy the pink razor or, you know, makeup or whatever. Actually, we do. So um, I looked into lots of the research around beauty expectations and the way in which pe women are penalised in the workplace for not uh, living up to them. Um, so women perceived as being overweight basically face a pay penalty. So the 
when women are underweight, they tend to earn more money. And if you plotted weight and uh, pay on a chart, then uh, as women get heavier, their average pay falls. While for men, it's the opposite, actually. Underweight men are tend to be penalised financially. While for men, the bulkier they are, the more their salary rises until they reach the point where they are very obese, at which point they are penalised. Um, that just blew my mind. It really does. Because it's about perspective. Like, what is a, a too big person? I mean, if you're a woman, the the standard now is just woke, like so skinny. Yeah. I, when I read that book, I'm like, that makes a lot of sense, actually. Because I've i heard, yeah, throughout my life, I'm, well, you don't have to, uh, you know, dress a certain way. You don't have to wear makeup. You don't have to dye your hair. You know what? You actually do. Because, I, and I always knew it. I didn't have the statistic to back me up. But I'm like, I know you will earn more. Or, or like, for instance, for me, my, my business, I'm, I run my own business. And so I know if I didn't wear makeup or really, you know, do my hair and, and put that kind of effort in, I wouldn't be able to charge as much for whatever I'm selling or a brand partnership or something like that because of society's expectations like that is just what's going on but now you have statistics to show that so that's really at least uh confirming for me but yeah it's it's, it's frustrating and another thing that you know kind of talking about these things that we all know but we don't really talk about and we should because these need to change is the uh, idea that women also pay more for certain things because there is unconscious bias for certain things like home renovations, getting your car fixed. And I didn't really realize it kind of reminded me when I was, uh, you know, uh, reading your book is, for instance, if we ever need to fix something in our home, typically, and I was doing this unconsciously, I would get my husband to actually email them and talk to them instead of me because I know he would probably get a better rate. And that really freaked me out that I'm like, I didn't even realize I was doing that. But I knew I was going to get like, I would guess even though we were on the same level, we don't really know much about home renovations. I know he would, uh, they would take him more seriously because he's a man, even if he was talking to a woman. And it's that's just wild that that's still happening. Yeah, I mean, I used to do that with my dad. I would get him to call a plumber or an electrician and negotiate with them because, yeah, I really felt that I would be penalised against. And when I looked into the data, that is actually what happens. So when women go to a car dealer to try to buy a used car, they are typically given higher prices. And this, again, happens all over the world. Um, I read studies from China and the US. What is interesting is that the one way you can go and get around this is when you go into a negotiation over, say, car repairs or something, basically, um, the person you're speaking to is acting on the assumption that if you are a woman or actually an ethnic minority, you're going to be less well-informed. So what you can do is, firstly, basically own the conversation and say something basically will let them know that you are well informed about the technicalities of what's going on and also what things cost in the market. And it's also a really great idea if you um, mention a price first, because then that that anchors the negotiation in figures and it helps to move the focus away from kind of bias and, oh, you're a woman and all of this. So those are two things that you can really do to get around it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, when I read that, I'm like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think 
I, I, yeah, that's definitely like something I need to always work on. It's like, no, have your price point in mind. Do your research beforehand to show, no, I'm serious and I know what I'm talking about. I mean, that's, I, and I guess they just assume men will have already done that. Maybe they will, or they'll just, no, even if a man doesn't come up with a number, they'll just, you know, probably still give him a better rate. But yeah, that's just like one little thing that I think all of us women have experienced that we need to, you know, be aware of and do what we can to kind of uh, <laughs> fix this unconscious bias. Yeah, it's it's wild yeah, even reading your book. But yeah, this unconscious bias has been, you know, we've been talking a lot about it, you know, in terms of race, especially, but it also comes down to um, gender. And it's not just a, a, oh, well, men have unconscious bias. Women also have unconscious bias. And I know I feel like I have some that I need to work on, you know, when you're, you know, say, looking to hire somebody, when you're comparing men to women, I need to be aware of, you know, kind of maybe some of the things that come into my mind. Like, uh, I feel like you kind of talked about this a little bit in the book. But yeah, we just have certain um, expectations depending on gender that may be, you know, just stereotypes are totally unfounded. Yeah. And th- this issue of unconscious bias is one of the reasons that I think it's a mistake when we do talk about the pay gap to try to reframe it as um, a motherhood penalty. There was a Netflix documentary um, on uh, women and pay and it had speakers like Hillary Clinton. She's a fantastic person but the whole kind of arc of the narrative in that documentary was that actually it's not a pay gap it's just a motherhood gap. The fact is that women who Women basically receive lower pay than men who are educated equivalently straight out of college. If you have two CVs and you call one Harry and one Harriet, the female one will be judged as being less competent, less employable, and she'll be given a lower salary. And then it's similar things for um, when it comes to the way people are graded in the workplace. So there was um, one law firm which had um, 2,000 employees in offices across the world, and they looked at how people were graded and in their appraisals. They found that no matter what the scale, one to 10 or one to six, um, bosses always wanted to give men or they were more comfortable giving men nine out of ten or ten out of ten than they were even if the grade was you know out of six men tended to get six out of six it's like we're more comfortable with exceptionalism and genius and uh, achievement being male attributes Um, and there are similar things in letters of recommendation the language used for women um, will basically be less spectacular whereas the language used for men will often be a lot stronger like he is exceptional talented gifted etc like that's just so unfortunate too and I feel like I, I know lots of people that are you know for instance aware of this especially thinking about them having children and them entering the workforce or like maybe I'm going to give my daughter a gender neutral name so they don't have to you know if it's like Aaron or something mm-hmm. like that so they don't have to deal with you know when they get their resume looked at they can't really judge them on gender because maybe it won't be as obvious yeah I mean this is one of the areas where I feel that, you know, we talk about the things that women can do for themselves, but actually there are structural solutions that need to be implemented. So, um, you know, CVs as a rule should be gender blind um, and, you know, indicators of your age, um, your uh, kind of ethnic background uh, and your sex should just be removed from CVs as standard and they should just be judged on um, career history and qualifications. Similarly, um, 
when Barack Obama was president, he changed the rules so that it was no longer unlawful for federal employees to talk about pay in the office with each other. That's the kind of thing that just opens up transparency. Because you can tell women like, oh, negotiate your pay. But most of us haven't got a clue what we're negotiating for. You know, there's no anchor um, what you should be negotiating around. Um, in some states in the US and in some countries in the world, it's actually um, illegal for employers to ask candidates about their former salary. Mm -hmm. And that's because if you base your next salary on the former salary, it risks carrying any discrimination forward. But at the same time, it doesn't even make sense because um, the salary for a role should have nothing to do with what somebody decided to pay you 10 years ago. And just as another example, um, there's a Scandinavian country, I think it's Denmark, um, where they've basically set up a database of what everybody earns. They found that when they left the database open access, there was a lot of snooping. But when they tweaked the system so that if you looked at somebody else's um, profile and saw how much they were earning, it would leave a trace. They found that the amount of kind of snooping just dropped massively and people were no longer looking up random people from their high school and seeing how much they earned today. But actually, they did look up what their co-workers were earning. And it's that kind of transparency that's really necessary. I'm not saying we need to go the Denmark way and go all out, but there are structural things that need to be done that you know, will really help fix the system. Well, yeah, you just uh, even mentioning the, and that was something that always irritated me when I, I did, you know, work for different companies as an uh, employee was every interview I ever had. So I think this is still pretty prevalent in Canada. They would always ask me, oh, you know, they, they would ask your salary expectations, which you're kind of like guessing, well, I don't know how much should I be? Because rarely do they advertise what kind of the range is. And they'd also ask you what your previous salary is. You're like, well, I don't, you know, in your mind, you're like, I don't want to tell you because why do you think I'm leaving my current employer is because I want to earn more money. So if I tell you what I'm earning there, it's unlikely that you're going to tell me, you know, give me a higher salary. I feel like that. And also that has nothing to do with anything because typically it's you're not doing maybe a lateral move. But even if you are, that doesn't matter. You have more experience under your belt than when you first started your your first uh, job. But you're maybe going for, a, you know, it's a different job at a higher level. But yeah, I mean, I think the last interview I went on before I decided to go self-employed because I'm like, I've had enough. Um, it was maybe five years ago now. And it was for, so I worked for a law firm on marketing. I was uh, going to, a, you know, uh, interviewing at a competing law firm. And yeah, that's what they asked. I'm like, but this is a completely different role. And I think quite honestly, what I did was I just lied about my previous salary. I'm like, as if they're ever going to ask my employer, um, you know, what maybe they will, but I doubt it. I feel like that's just like a question they ask. But I'm like, it doesn't matter because now, now yeah, now you're you're putting me in this kind of cycle of always under earning because I was under earning at the beginning of my career because I'm a woman. And now how can I ever exceed, you know, that? And then, yeah, speaking about there should absolutely be more transparency um, in, in terms of, you know, you understanding what other people earn, you know, widely, but also within your own workplace. I only found out what people would earn when I was on the way out because I'm like, I have nothing to lose and it's not mm. inappropriate because I'm like, you can tell me I don't, I'm not going to do anything with this information. And then I'd find out. And then, of course, I'd always find out that I'm earning less than you, my male counterparts who were, you know, less qualified, less experienced, not as good at their 
your job as most of the other people on the mm. team. And yeah, and it was always just so shocking. I'm like, there needs to be a better way. Because this, like, who is this helping besides, I guess, the employer, you know, saving a little bit of money. But then you're also not retaining, I would assume, uh, your employees or your top performers uh, because they're, you know, being underpaid. Yeah, absolutely. Like the last time um, I was looking at a job application and it said, uh, what are your salary expectations? I wrote my salary expectations are what the company's budgeted for this role because Mm -hmm. that's what I want to be earning. And um, there was a feminist group that I read of that was basically campaigning for women to, when they see that question, put in a million dollars or a million pounds, whatever your currency just say that's what you're worth because yeah. you know there's this whole narrative like ask for what you're worth well yeah. you know I don't like equating um salary with worth because there are people who do and mostly women you know who do such worthy and worthwhile jobs and salary is not a reflection of what you're worth it's just what you happen to be paid at that period of time and you know it's a combination of all sorts of factors but um Ultimately, the only people that benefit from the way the system is set up at the moment are employers. And, you know, there are other areas, for example, you know, when we talk about why women don't invest. um, So women tend not to invest their money in stocks and shares to the same degree that men do. When we do have savings, it's more likely to be held in cash. Now, the investment industry is really keen to change this. They want more customers and it doesn't make sense if nearly half the population aren't investing their money. But the narrative around this is usually like women are just shy of risk. You know, they don't like investing in the stock markets. When I became a financial journalist and I read that, I just thought, what women? Like, which women are you talking about who are afraid of risk? Like, to me, it just seemed patently obvious that women don't invest their money in the stock market because they're acutely aware of their household's short-term needs and outgoings. Like, there's this stat in marketing that women make 80% of spending decisions. And that's usually because they're tasked with buying stuff for everybody in the family, like the kids, but also the husband. And they're the person that does the weekly shop. Um, But at the same time, when it comes to investments and the family's mortgage and that kind of thing, it tends to be left to the guy. And I think that it's really important that we reframe this, that, you know, women aren't risk averse. I mean, there's a a tendency for that kind of mindset to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And actually, um, studies of people who are highly paid and also highly educated Um, So there was one study of university professors, for example, found that when you take um, socioeconomic status out of it and you look at people who have a lot of money or are expecting an inheritance, women are no less hungry for risk in the stock market than men are. And actually, when men invest um, in stocks and shares, they tend to do it in more of a lottery style casino type way. So they tend to buy shares um, they t- they tend to dip in and out of the markets, buy shares, sell them because they think they're at the peak, then maybe buy them again. Actually, that just racks up trading costs. And it's not as good a strategy as buy and hold. And women are far more likely to do this, which is buy some stocks that you have conviction in and then keep them for 10 years and watch them go up and down. You know, Don't try and be clever and beat the market. So yeah, there's just loads of research basically that shows that if you look at portfolios, um, on average, women tend to outperform men on the yeah. long term. Yeah, no, that's definitely a narrative that I've seen. And, and, and you know, in some part, yes, women are 
maybe a little more risk averse, but usually what I feel or what I find, it's not that they just are unwilling to take risk. It's that they don't necessarily understand what that means. And I think part of that is because depending on where you get your information, for example, if you see a financial advisor and it's a man or even a woman, quite honestly, because there is an unconscious bias there, I feel like you are being talked to about investing in a different way than if they were talking to a man. So, you know, from my personal experience, they would talk to me as if I don't know what I'm talking about. They wouldn't explain things. They would, you know, overload the conversation with jargon to kind of maybe impress me, but really just confuse me. And then they would say things uh, about risk and be like, oh, well, maybe you need something more conservative in your portfolio as if it's a way to be like, this is safer. And be like, you know, who doesn't want something that's safe? Of course, that sounds great. We don't want to, you know, lose all our money, but they don't frame it and be like, well, there's actually risk when you do something, you know, on the safe side or conservative, you're going to earn lower returns, which means, uh, or potentially, and which means ultimately you'll have less wealth than if you were to take on more risk. And I feel like a lot of it is just the, the way that we're, we're, told things or spoken to because I mean, you know, having this podcast and trying to promote, you know, women investing and taking on more risk. I think a lot of it comes down to I didn't I didn't realize that. Most of the time women are in the wrong portfolios for their their goal and their time horizon and your and their actual personal risk tolerance because they just weren't, I think, given the same information as maybe their male counterparts. I absolutely agree with you. So I think one of the reasons that it was so interesting to go back and look at ways in which women were prevented from working in all sorts of industries, like in North America, um, uh, you know, kind of in the 50s, women couldn't work in bowling alleys because they might get be in contact with the wrong kind of men. And there were all yeah. of these weird rules. And, you know, the outcome of that is that women haven't been able to talk to their daughters about money. So my mother um, is Irish. In Ireland, women couldn't own a home independently until 1976. Wow. So my mum and her, yeah, right. My mum and her five sisters would have been in their 20s. Um, some of them would have been in their 30s before that rule changed. So for them, there was just literally no concept that a woman would ever be financially independent. Having a home was something you did with a man. And it obviously meant that we were locked out of being able to buy an asset that would rise in value. So how could my mum really have been able to kind of instill in me and my sister that owning a home was something to really do like it was left to my dad and that was understandable um so it's the same thing with finance it's like women aren't engaged in that um industry because women aren't in that industry and you know when we talk about risk as well it's this idea that women don't like risk is also meant to say something about um when women lead businesses and when they lead countries you know I don't think there have ever been enough women at the in the upper echelons of business or enough women running countries for us to actually deduce anything about their appetite for risk. Um, lots of countries in the world have had one female leader as president or prime minister. Very few have done it again to have two. It's like they'll try it once, but oh no, not again. And there's also the concept of um, the glass cliff, which is when women are promoted to senior positions when the business is basically about to fall off a cliff and nobody else wants the job. Um, a really good example is, um, so JC Penney, the uh, retailer in the US, in its 100 plus year history, had never had a woman at the helm until it was basically in the doldrums and things had just gone tits up. Uh, they appointed a woman. We could look at the UK. Um, the UK decided to leave the European Union, Brexit, and... Um, 
all of the men in parliament uh, kind of resigned, quit politics, stepped back. And then we had our second female prime minister, Theresa May. Nobody else wanted the job. I like know. that was a terrible time to be prime minister. It was a Why terrible would you want job. to do that? Yeah, looking at some <laughs> yeah. of the UK news and especially even like the how they speak about her, and it's, it's like she had an impossible task and no one wanted the job. And so they're like, well, women, they shouldn't be the prime minister. I'm like, um, would you have done a better job? And no offense <laughs> to your current prime minister, but you know, like, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, in Canada, we've had one woman prime minister. She lasted less than a year. And I'm pretty sure, like, I don't know all of the, data about it but I'm pretty sure the only reason she got the job wasn't because she was voted in it's because again no one wanted the job (laughs) and that was the only time we've had a woman prime minister how sad is that how sad is that and like what's fascinating is um so ideas about what women in with money and women with leadership roles they're really culturally constructed so i was fascinated to discover that um in parts of eastern europe there are women have um that earn more than men um these there are pay gaps in favor of women in traditionally male industries such as construction waste management water this was a throwback to the Soviet era when those um, the Soviet regimes wanted to prove that their economic model worked. And to do that, they needed to get women out into the workforce in exactly the same jobs as men. So there was unprecedented investment in female education and women were encouraged into basically male industries. And over time, um, I mean, there was resistance at first, but over time they were accepted. And then the kind of the... Th- the end result of that is that women have been accepted in waste management and construction as leaders for so long that they earn more. And then the other case is um, every feminist's favourite country, of course, is Iceland. Mm-hmm. And in Iceland, there is a near unshakable belief that having women in power is good for everybody. And this really goes back to um, it's a big icy nation, very harsh place to live men were often away for very long periods of of time basically it was a fishing nation and women were left alone at home to kind of look after house and home and the kids so there has always been this archetype of a strong woman and that has basically translated into their politics so in iceland there's a generation of girls that has grown up believing that presidents and prime ministers are female so Um, The country had the world's first democratically elected female president in 1980. Um, She was re-elected three times and then she was followed by um, uh, the world's first lesbian prime minister um, who was in office between 2009 to 2013. So there was this period basically from 1980 to 2013 when Iceland had women as president or prime minister and a whole generation of girls grew up believing that that is women's role and then equally there are lots of little um uh, kind of niches where women are unusually present so in argentina girls grew up believing that astrophysics is a career for women because the the country's had a long tradition of gender diversity within that profession um so even back in the 80s a quarter of argentina's professional astronomers were female um I just find this kind of thing really fascinating because when we talk about women and pay, you know, obviously we're looking at it through our um, our Western European and North American angle. But in other parts of the world, there are just different ideas. Like look at China, for example. Um, you know, when we look at the coming decades, 
the world's billionaires, the females are going to be coming from Asia and South Asia because over there, there are just different ideas about women in senior leadership roles that we don't have here. Like we're really lagging behind in uh, Canada, America and Britain. Yeah, we are. Which is, uh, I mean, uh, yeah, the only thing, yeah, kind of, I, I do appreciate that, like in your book, as you talk about what's kind of wrong with everything, but then at the end of the book, you do have some um, ideas and advice on what we as women and everyone can do, which I think is so, so helpful because we're always looking for those action items. Obviously, this is a, a big issue that hopefully will not take hundreds of years to <laughs> fix. We hopefully can do more than that uh, in the meantime. But uh, yeah. Yeah. um, So my background is um, as a finance journalist and I'm really passionate about investment and getting women to understand that it isn't something that's masculine and aggressive. And just like the weight section of the gym, there is literally no reason why women shouldn't go in there. Um, You know, with investment, I think that basically women haven't had very much access to that industry. And I think that there's so many connotations of like whiz kid traders and, you know, charts and all of this. But actually, when it comes down to it, investing in stocks is looking at the world we have, thinking about how the world might change. And you want to put your money into companies that will change the world or will create the kind of world that you want to see. So, you know, big areas at the moment for investors are um, sustainable energy and cleaning up water supplies. And these are the companies that people are pouring money into that are doing well. You know, at the same time, um, We've had these big uh, stock market launches when a company puts its shares on the market for the first time. It's called an IPO, Initial Public Offering. Uh, Last autumn, everybody was really excited about a company called Beyond Meat going onto the stock market for the first time. It makes um, fake meat burgers and sausages. And this sparked so much debate. Have Beyond Meat discovered the kind of the perfect fake meat sausage? Are they going to change the world? You know, will there be a world where eating animals is just seen as complete nonsense? Or will Beyond Meat just be one of many? Will there be a competitor that usurps them or, you know, something else will happen that actually it isn't quite the superstar company that we think it is. So that's why investing is exciting to me. I think Mm -hmm. it's looking at the future and making predictions about the world that we'll live in. I completely agree. This is why I I love talking about (laughs) investing and and getting more people, especially women, to invest as soon as possible. Um, I know we could probably talk for another, like, you know, 45 minutes because this was so enjoyable, but your book really would, I I feel like everyone should read it, especially men, (laughs) just because I feel like they may not have the, you know, they won't have the same experiences. So they may not know a lot of the stuff and what a great way to, you know, broaden your horizons and become a better feminist and, uh, and, uh, ally. And so I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing every, all of the things that I wanted to talk uh, to you about after finishing this book that I absolutely loved. Um, but before I let you go, where can people find more information about you and grab a copy of your book, why women are poorer than men and what we can do about it? Yeah. Um, my name is Annabelle Williams and the book is for sale on Amazon and good retailers all over the world. Um, my Twitter is at talk to Annabelle and I'm on Instagram at Ms. Annabelle Williams. So yes, look me up. Um, thank you so much, Jessica, for your time. It was really great to chat to you. Oh, it was a pleasure having you on the show. 
And that was episode 282 with Annabelle Williams. Uh, her book is out now, available in Canada, the US, the UK, wherever you are. And it is called Why Women Are Poorer Than Men and What We Can Do About It. I, of course, am giving away a copy of her book. Yay. Um, so if you're interested in reading, well, you can enter to win a copy of the book. I'll share a little bit more details in a moment. Um, I've got some things to share with you guys. Um, first, actually, I should remind you, not only pick up a copy of her book, uh, you can follow her on Twitter. Like, that's how I found her. Uh, you can find her at Talk to Annabelle. That's A N N A B E L L E. Um, you can also find her on Instagram at uh, M S Annabelle Williams. So I guess it's like Ms. Annabelle Williams. Um, I will, of course, link to her so you can uh, easily find her in the show notes for this episode. Go to jessicamorehouse.com slash 282. And of course, you can find all the episode show notes for any episode I've ever done at uh, jessicamorehouse.com slash podcast or jessicamorehouse.com slash whatever the number of that episode you're listening to is. So, um, uh, lots of things to share. Uh, so stick around. Just a few uh, things I need to share about this podcast episode sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by VIP Kid. Looking to level up your financial situation by adding on a side hustle? I'm obviously a huge fan of side hustles since not only did my own side hustle help me save and invest for my future at a faster rate than my salary could have allowed, it ultimately led me to a whole new career this podcast. So if you're looking for a way to earn some extra money while shaping adorable young minds at the same time, you may want to check out becoming a virtual English teacher with VIP Kid. You can earn between $14 to $22 US per hour plus incentives, work whenever and wherever you want, get access to hundreds of workshops and classes to help you grow in your career, and the best part is you don't have to spend hours crafting your own teaching curriculum. As a teacher, you would get access to VIP Kid's world-class curriculum and all classes are one-on-one, -on -one, so students stay super engaged and there is no class prep required. All you need to be eligible is a bachelor's degree, at least two years experience teaching or working with children, and eligibility to work in the United States or Canada. To learn more about VIP Kid, which was named one of Glassdoor's top 10 best places to work in 2019 and 2020, and the number one company for remote jobs, visit jessicamorehouse.com slash VIP Kid. Once again, that's jessicamorehouse.com slash VIP Kid, or check out the show notes for this episode. Okay, so like I mentioned, I'm giving away a ton of books, including uh, uh, Annabelle's book, uh, Why Women Are Poorer Than Men. You can find it at jessicamorehouse.com slash contest. I will also link to it in the show notes for this episode, jessicamorehouse.com slash 282. But besides her book, I'm giving away a ton of books. I think I'm actually up to 10 books I'm giving away, and I will start drawing winners very soon as we uh, get close to the end of this podcast season. So like I mentioned in last week's episode, I'm giving away a copy of Bolisha Cunby's book, Clever Girl Finance, The Side Hustle Guide, which which is uh, out in June. Um, let's see, what else am I giving away? Um, the Seven Deadly Economic Sins by James Otison. Uh, Think Like a Breadwinner by Jennifer Barrett. Uh, Babies, How to Afford Your Bundle of Joy by Lisa Van Degein with uh, Vivian Lung, who was on the show. Um, I'm giving away Kelly Keene's uh, new edition of her book, Talk Money to Me. It's the COVID edition. Um, I'm giving away The Money Plot by Frederick Kaufman. Broke Millennial Talks Money by Aaron Lowry. Back to Business. Um, by, oh gosh, now I'm going to have to actually get my glasses on, uh, Back to Business by Nancy Jensen and Sarah Dewenwald. 
And uh, one of my you know favorite uh, new retirement uh, books, uh, Retirement Income for Life by Frederick Vettisi. This one's uh, great if you're Canadian and, and want to uh, really dive deep into the world of retirement income planning and who doesn't want to do that. Um, so, so many great books that you could check out, jessicamorehouse.com slash contest. I also get asked a lot, um, hey, do you have any book recommendations? And you bet I do. I have a special section of my website just on recommendations. So um, I have a bunch of uh, books by American authors and Canadian authors. You can find it at jessicamorehouse.com slash recommendation. So make sure to check it out. I also have lots of recommendations because I also get that ask this a lot. Do you have any recommendations for fee-only financial planners or investment coaches or accountants or insurance agents? You bet I do. So they're all there. I also have a bunch of financial products and services uh, linked there as well. If you're looking for like accounting software or what are the different robo advisors or tax software or whatever, I have them all listed on my recommendations page. So make sure to check it out. Another thing that you should, of course, check it on my website uh, is my shop page. Uh, if you're looking for a budget spreadsheet, I've got some free ones. I got some you know, ones that are not free, but they're like 20 bucks. So it's like, come on, it's like 20 bucks. Um, and it comes with a full uh, video tutorial library to walk you through exactly how to use it. I guess really what it ended up being is kind of a mini course uh, for this budget spreadsheet, but there you go. Um, also, of course, I have my wealth building blueprint for Canadians online course, which you can apply to now. If you want to learn how to start investing specifically in a passive way, I show you everything you need to know about investment products, investment accounts in Canada, um, capital markets, how to build your own investment plan, how to go about robo-advisor investing or self-directed investing, how to put it all together so you can start building your wealth as a Canadian. So make sure to check that out. It is on my shop page, jessicamorehouse.com slash shop. Speaking of, uh, if you're interested in learning more about investing, well, uh, you did just miss my webinar, <laughs> but that's okay. Uh, so I uh, hosted a webinar last night, May 25th at 7 p.m. Eastern time um, on uh, investing, basically. But I realized, well, just because some people uh, weren't able to make it, I, you know, I'm, I, I want to be able to, you know, uh, make it live on so you can uh, watch the replay. And so you can, if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash WBB webinar, that's jessicamorehouse.com slash WBB webinar. You can find the replay, watch it, see what's going on. Um, yeah. So there you go. You can watch the replay right there if you're interested. Um, okay. So I feel like those are kind of like the major things at the moment, but of course I've always got things in the works, don't I? Don't I? And so one way you can keep in touch with me because sometimes I don't have time uh, to mention it on the show, or maybe you missed it because you didn't listen to the end and that's okay. Sign up to my email newsletter. Um, I only send it out bi-weekly. JessicaMorehouse.com slash subscribe is where you can uh, check that out. Also, you can uh, get access to my free resource library. There's a bunch of free downloads and stuff like that on my website, jessicamorehouse.com slash resources, and then you'll automatically get signed up to my email list. So that is it for me. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you to my podcast editor, Matt Rideout. Uh, hopefully it is sunny, so get out there. Enjoy the sunshine. Have a good rest of your week. I will be back here, as always, next Wednesday with a fresh new episode of the More Money Podcast. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.